0: Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, Andrew Dewing will talk you through the current market, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice. He will also be interviewing a leader in the world of agriculture, and finishing up with farm chat, which includes his favorite bit, where he tastes beer for free. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and his market report.
1: Welcome to the Market Report. What follows is my thoughts or gut instincts of what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market Report for week commencing Monday the 29th of April 2019. Right, where should we start? We'll start with all seed rape because it's quite easy. Hasn't changed much at all in the last few weeks we've been talking. Old Crop's gone up a ditty bit, so you can make 307x for your Old Crop oilseed rape. Uh, I'm the old tired scratch record on that one. Ditch it, get it done, get it out, and so on. New crop hasn't moved in terms of price. We are friendly to new crop oilseed rape prices. We think there are troubles despite the lovely yellowness out there. Um, We all know flea beetle exists. We've had a number of our farmers highlighting just what problem they've got in the main shoot of their plant. So um, we are friendly to to new crop oilseed rape. Barley next. Again, scratch record. Old crop barley is dead. It is no more. It is an ex-barley product. It's gone down a bit in price currently. If you were trying to sell it, it would be 128x farm. Not looking very promising at all, and there is seemingly enough barley out there. Barley on new crop, ignoring feed barley, but looking at new crop malting barley, we believe that this recent dry weather in Europe has had an effect. We've seen irrigators out there trying to to put some moisture into the winter barley to to keep it going, but we believe without any doubt winter barley has been affected and we believe that spring barley also has been checked by this dry weather. There is a, a potentially a bit of rain coming through uh, imminently should be with us for this morning, but there isn't much really forecast in the next 6 weeks beyond that, so we are getting worried. Wheat has, on old crop, been having a tough old time the last couple of weeks. Yesterday, being Thursday, uh, I'm recording this on the Friday uh, morning, the market had a fairly hefty hit leading up to yesterday and then decided to turn round on old crop, so it had a £3 rally. There is a, a technical issue on the May futures where there is a big short position, which if someone has got futures sales... In the month of tender, which we're now in, and they can't tender it, they have to come into the market to buy it back. Now, either someone is playing a bit of a I'm clever than you game, or they're in the shit. So, possibly, they're going to get squeezed to pay a bit more money on the May futures. So, if it comes up high enough... Someone like me will sell futures and tender it again. But uh, it's got another fiver to go before we think about that. So old crop wheat, I think has had enough of dropping, but it is pretty weak. I mean, 160x is about the line where it's at, depending on which month you want to move it. Obviously, everybody wants to move May. I don't think there's any space in May for movement because lots of the contracts that are already there are not going to move on time, as it is uh, looking at lots of the merchants' books. They're all long of May wheat. However, June and July is a completely different story, and I think July could become very, very interesting before the potential of new crop French coming in at the end of the month. So old crop wheat isn't going to go down anymore in the near term. New crop wheat... Again, we have a drought issue, um, we have world production issues being debated, it's been very weak recently in the corn market in the States, and it's been very weak, probably on the basis of the South American crop's been very good, there's lots of reports of the Russian crop being good, but let's all remember that last year the Russians spent the entire year telling us they were going to ban exports, and miraculously, it kept pushing the price up, and miraculously, again, they kept exporting, so... They had 7 million tons more than they actually admitted to, which means can you believe what the Russians are telling you when they say the price is good? If there is a price hike in Russia, it is a major issue for Mr. Putin. If he hasn't got a perfect crop and world wheat prices go up, it will be a problem for, you know, if it will bring food prices up in all sorts of countries. So I'm skeptical about Russian reports. Although the weather seems to suggest that they have got a good crop, but the problem areas, which is on our doorstep, us, Northwestern Europe, Eastern Europe in places, and the damage that was done earlier on in Spain, is, is definitely going to come home and make a difference. So new crop we think potentially has the opportunity to rally, and the catalyst we hope that's going to do it is that the wet weather in the States delaying the corn planting. It's behind schedule on their, on their planting report, which comes out every Monday night at 8 o'clock in the evening. Well, it might be 9 o'clock. Anyway, one or the other. If you go onto the website, it counts down to when it comes out. The planting delay, uh, I think they were averaged 6% planted against a five-year average of 14% planted. Last year, it was as bad as this, but the, the May period was a phenomenally easy planting window. There's no guarantee that will happen again and delayed planted corn yields less than stuff gone in on time. So we we are watching very carefully that weather forecast because it is not very dry for the next 10 days. So we think potentially corn with that problem and the fact that the funds are record short of contracts is going to be the catalyst that possibly gives this market a bit of a weather boost. So, we're going to be looking at cash settlement potential on some of our new crop contracts, which is showing some phenomenally good profits. But um, we're talking about cash settlements in a week's time on the podcast. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours.
0: Crush Foods produces a unique range of single variety, cold pressed rapeseed oils. All their seed is grown here in Norfolk. They only press a single variety for its taste and they believe that this is what gives the oil the light, nutty flavour people like. Available in local shops across Norfolk, Suffolk and beyond. Visit crush-foods.com for more information. And now it's time for our feature.
1: Today, we hear from one of the scientists of the John Innes Centre, Dr Laura Dixon, who explains her surprise findings on wheat fertilisation. Claire went to interview her.
2: My research really focuses on understanding how wheat plants, in particular, are responding to environmental signals. And so um, my recent research has really been working on understanding how uh, winter wheat, in particular, is understanding the, the cold. And how it's using this to make a transition from uh, growing in a vegetative state, which is just the continual production of leaves, and making the transition into a reproductive state, which is when uh, they start to make the wheat ear.
0: Ah, right. I've heard my husband talk about this a lot because he's a farmer. I mean, I think this is the the sort of overall word for this is vernalisation, then, is it? Yeah. And can you explain why and when that occurs?
2: Yeah. So, vernalisation is, as you say, this overall term which actually refers to quite a long process so in the cultivars we have at the moment in the uk uh, some of them are very require a short vernalization period which is up to four or six weeks and during this time they're responding to low temperatures and incrementally increasing the transition chance of becoming a making like a reproductive transition and so For a line like that, which only received, say, three weeks, they'd still make a transition to flowering. But the flowering time of the plant would ultimately be a lot more delayed than if they experienced six weeks of cold, uh, That it would then flower earlier. However, we've also got um, varieties in the UK which require up to 12 weeks low temperature to um, be fully vernalised and therefore kind of flower at the time that we'd be able to predict.
0: So your findings
2: were? Um, So... My researcher has really been looking into understanding how the plants are responding to these low temperatures. And what we identified was actually vernalisation is occurring over a much broader temperature range. So previously we really thought that vernalisation was occurring around 6 degrees and potentially up to, in a few instances, 12. And what I've observed is actually once plants have experienced some cold, they will continue vernalising all the way up to 18 degrees C. And so this uh, has a very clear effect for... Our understanding of the process, which basically means that plants are probably m- in a much more vernalized state in autumn than we first realized, and that during winter they're probably just sitting there waiting for uh, other signals, including um, a warming temperature and the day length signal. So, increasing um, amounts of light before they're then moving quickly into the sort of next stages of of the flowering process.
0: So, just to get our head around it, basically. Perhaps it's in the autumn they require the really cold weather. Is that what you're saying, or?
2: Ah, uh, no. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that in the autumn the temperatures are low enough that the plants are vernalising. So they don't require a very cold autumn. So, but if say low temperatures were experienced in autumn, then the plants would definitely vernalise. But if we just had a couple of days of low temperature and then a, a relatively mild autumn, that's enough. Uh, to see the plants actually going through the vernalisation process then.
0: They're more open to different temperatures than you thought?
2: I think the, uh, the response, we were surprised by how wide the temperature response is, and we are also surprised to so our workers identified um, two points in the response which are responding to temperature. One is responding to cold, and one is responding to warm. And so we can see that there's a, a very clear balance between these two, um, which obviously gives us some clear targets to work on for actually increasing the robustness of this response further and so by that i mean that we could start to really understand how long a plant is going to take to vernalize under sort of a wider temperature band and that will affect the drilling date and also affect our ability to predict when they're going to um, start to grow vigorously in the in the spring and also when they're then going to flower
1: oh,
0: wow amazing so did you kind of were you there when these results started to come through what were you kind of researching at the time were you expecting like more of a temperature thing or was it just like you were just looking at temperature?
2: Yeah so it was a an interesting process actually because we started by um, really wanting to, uh, to understand how ambient temperature so the sort of general pleasant growing temperatures that we'd experienced in the UK in the field affects the subsequent flowering time and so I'd conducted a series of experiments with the same varieties at different temperatures to see what is the range of flowering between say thirteen degrees to to nineteen and It was actually from this work that we identified um, a particular cultivar that has a very, very extreme vernalization response, and so we could start to see that actually by the time it got to nineteen degrees, it was still not vernalized, wow. and therefore from that we were able to dissect the the sort of the warm and the cold aspect of of the winter response.
0: So what are the implications that you're kind of drawing from this?
2: So the genetics of what we've identified is actually that some of the lines that we would initially say are not requiring a lot of vernalisation may actually need a lot more than than we realize um under warmer conditions.
0: So you say requiring a lot more vernalization. What does that mean exactly?
2: Uh so sorry. It means that yeah, so basically what I'm saying is for some lines that we've been growing in the UK where we've had a safe cold winters or, or colder autumns they would have vernalized in a way that they will not behave when the temperature rises a little so the genetics that they're carrying means that they're going to respond more to the the warmer temperatures in a non-vernalizing way than other cultivars which will respond to the warmer temperatures in a vernalizing way so it's a complex network that we've um, identified but it's uh, a network that we can work with, all the same, and really dissect and understand what germplasm we should be using in in which areas.
0: And so, for sort of Norfolk um, wheat, what do you like? What changes would you be making, and what improvements would that kind of give? I think for
2: um, breeding wise, Norfolk wheat, we have a, a really nice uh, climate normally um, for wheat growing, and so here I think it'd be important that we are working on developing. a germplasm which is very very stable and robust to temperature changes so that we can um, drill at a predicted time and we know how they're going to behave we can work on extending that vernalization period which will increase the yield capacity and and ultimately um, increase the final yield if the season is a nice one.
0: (laughs) And so do you think you could use these results in different countries then to be able to grow wheat where perhaps you haven't grown before?
2: Yeah absolutely so I think with um the greater understanding of vernalisation, we can start to push back the kind of barriers. And so identifying the lines which are requiring sort of twelve weeks' vernalization, that also links with a very strong cold tolerance or frost hardiness. And so there be that'll be really important for, you know, areas such as Central Europe and, and Canada where, you know, you really do need that sort of winter robustness. Um equally understanding lines where we can have a very, very mild fertilization response um would also help, you know, the warmer, warmer countries.
0: It does always amaze me when you like see wheat growing in the field and you know, people sort of say to me, like, Oh, so you, you, you plant this like what in the in the you know in the autumn and then like and it survives all winter and then it knows when to kind of grow. It is it is incredible, isn't it? And, and like, you know, they say now that we might have some frost you know again. And you think, gosh, you know, it's kind of, it must be thinking it's pretty much spring and then it might go to, Mm. it might go very wintry again and then it will come to spring again, but it will still survive sort of thing and still kind of grow mostly as you would expect, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, so I think this is, I mean, it's a really exciting aspect for a scientist because it means that we've actually got a lot of natural variation or domesticated variation out there for us to understand. And so we can start picking away at how the wheat plant is doing this. You're absolutely right. I mean, from what we've seen, it's very much like the plant isn't just going this is winter, game over, Onto the next stage. It is, a, is much more of a fluid process than we first realised and it's taking into account many environmental signals to make those decisions. Yeah, it's amazing. What a clever plant.
0: Are you, as a scientist, looking more and more for solutions that will help us overcome some of the effects of climate change?
2: Yeah, I think it's definitely clear that the response of temperature and the role of temperature on our crop plants... is is definitely an aspect that we need to really understand if we're serious about being able to maintain and actually enhance yield under conditions where temperature patterns are much more variable or, you know, such as in the UK, whilst temperature pattern may not be more variable, we're just seeing different temperatures, as in it's much warmer in some seasons and much colder in others. And so we need to be ready to be able to um, sort of address this if we still are serious about maintaining our yield.
0: And my last question is, we can't go through an interview without Brexit at the moment, but what are your thoughts about how this will affect your science going forward?
2: So so Brexit is obviously a hugely complex uh, process, but science uh, at its very core is very collaborative and very um, worldwide. For us, it's very important that we can interact with all of our colleagues across the globe, and that includes Europe. And so, um, yeah, for us, it's, it's a it's a
0: tough thing to watch. <laughs> and does it affect your funding at all, potentially? Or
2: yeah, I mean, Britain has done incredibly well out of um, receiving scientific funding from the EU, in particular. I mean, this particular piece of work came from a European project which had twenty partners, um, and you know they were all growing different uh, germplasm in different countries, and we we're analysing the responses. And you know, from that sort of depth of data set you can start to really drill down on particular responses and that's that was the basis from which i was able to take this piece of work forward it's it's one of these things that i'm sure science will survive if we leave europe but it would it would thrive if we remain sort of thing so yeah
0: well thank you very much that's brilliant okay thank you Now it's time for Farm
1: Chat. Today's banter uh, is between myself, Josh and Claire. We're going to have a, a good old banter about, well, Chris Packham, ecosystems and Extinction Rebellion because these are all very prominent issues. So good morning you two. Good morning. Good morning. But The best thing about my banters now is I don't tell people what we're going to talk about and then we get it from the hip. So He's
0: been researching it all night and we've come in cold. <laughs> no don't <joking.
1: laughs> Well, yeah, actually, I on the basis of the argument that at some point I'm going to mention I biked in today. So my green cred- credentials are so superb this morning. <laughs> that's why. Anyway, right, so Chris Packham, uh, there's a petition to, get, to uh, get him sacked from the BBC because he's too biased. And uh, the influence that's been had on natural England to not shoot certain birds sounds absolutely logical to a man living in the middle of the city. But there's a photograph of a lamb with his eyes pecked out and its tongue pecked out by a rook, a uh, newly-born lamb. It's shocking and it's real because that's what crows do to newly-born lambs. So has Chris Packham made that point to the general population, do you think?
3: I think um, one of the biggest issues is that the law changed pretty much overnight. It's a bit like changing the national speed limit from 60 to 70 overnight and then... Telling people off when they when they get caught speeding because it changed too quickly. Chris Packham turned up with a very expensive lawyer, and naturally, England just jumped to it. And sadly, the lack of education um, has really played a big part in this. I think
1: so. Yeah, seventy to sixty, not sixty to seventy. But yeah,
3: yeah.
0: it did come out of nowhere, didn't it? Um, I don't know. It just it, it felt like Patrick Sunday just read out this article, and it was like, oh god, what's happened here?
1: Well, I mean, the, the implications. I mean, pigeons—you can't shoot pigeons, um, or seed rape crops. Uh, you know. So we. So when do we if, we? if we allowed crows, magpies, whatever other birds that that, that go around decimating the the, the bird population, uh, I mean, it, the actual endangered, the red, endangered, birds are the ones that get eaten by these predators. So should we just let it let it go? And then all of the bird counts the RSPB are doing will be ruined by the fact that the crows and the magpies and what have you are just free to do whatever they want.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that's the biggest worry, isn't it? The songbird kind of population that will be you decimated. know, decimated if if the others aren't killed. I mean, I, I don't know, I'd love to see some statistics on what the impact is of shooting pigeons.
3: There was quite a lot on Twitter yesterday, something that Chris Packham retweeted, and then all the comments were saying that that the people with guns are psychotic, are going to start murdering people, and, but they're not really. It's actually it's a, it's something that it means something. To them. They're not going out to kill because they want to kill stuff. They're going out to kill because they're protecting crops or protecting livestock or looking after something. It's not an issue of, wow, let's just go and kill
1: something. How much fun that would be. Um, well, the pl- planting of crops, if you plant a crop and it is decimated by a flock of pigeons so it doesn't exist, you don't have a crop. At what point do you not have enough crops so people start getting hungry? At what point do you have not enough songbirds because they've been eaten by the, the, the these various predators? They can't blame the farmer any longer, and there's all of a sudden a lot less birds. Are so they going to then say, well, it's the pesticides, or, well, it must be the farmers still. At some point, the farmer is going to be... They're going to realise that actually they've done something which means that we've got these birds... Uh, still thriving. I think it's. I think that this 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 li- missing link between reality and the one percent of the population that actually produces the food. That, that I, I saw on I saw on Twitter a really really impressive um, emotional outburst by a U.S. Uh, senator, or he was I, I can't remember. I, I'm forgive me for not remembering the name, but he it, it's I, I read. I, I'm going to get it onto our Twitter page and retweet it on the Doing Grain page. This guy sits there and he, he suddenly gets asked, I, don't, I can't remember what the question was, but he suddenly just says, do you know, hang on a minute, thank goodness for farmers. I'm fed up with bashing them. He said that there's 1% of the population, in effect, who produce the food. And that 1% means the rest of the population don't need to think about producing food. They can spend the, all of their time being lawyers, being investors, being teachers, being bankers, being whatever they want to be. They don't have to think for one moment about producing food. They just have it there. So that 1% of the population who's to blame for all these terrible things is effectively doing a job that everyone else has outsourced. And at some point in time you're going to have to realise the 99% of the population that are eating this food that you cannot completely destroy that that industry. And that industry has evolved to a place that is efficient and has created an, an ecosystem that we are all enjoying. But everyone seems to just, oh, let's point the finger. And that's, that is the problem we face. It's, it's a really good tweet.
0: Yeah, I think the thing is that once you change that ecosystem, which we did hundreds of years ago by starting farming... You can't really go back, you know. Like it's lovely to think, oh, let's just let them all live and have a happy life. But I suppose once you've made,
1: bring back the wolves. Once
0: you've made that kind of, you know, you've you've changed the fields and it's not just woodland and grassland. You've changed that so that you have to intervene because otherwise, you know, you're not going to have the whole diversity. I don't think.
3: No, talking about bringing the bears back, they're actually now trying to do rewilding whatever the hell that means but that seems to mean that they want to bring back um wolves into scotland but there's a reason why they got rid of wolves there's a very good reason because they were <laughs> killing people, people yeah <laughs> L- livestock you know it, they're not just doing it for the fun of it they did it for a reason so re bringing these things probably isn't the best idea but to someone who lives in a
1: city that will never see one brilliant apart from probably on Instagram but so leading leading from from there that the ecosystem dynamic into extinction rebellion now i've mentioned biking in didn't i did i mention that yeah i
0: have mentioned that
1: <laughs> i did that so i could be really really smug M- <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, but the i'm i'm going to commit on the basis of Extinction Rebellion pricking my conscience, I'm going to commit to biking to work 52 times in the year, which is one one day a week, which I'll try and get them all done in the summer. So, now, that's a stupid personal, I'll get fit maybe a little or something thing going on, but the, I definitely am motivated or I have a conscience on, I recognise that the the human race is the bacteria in the plate that is eventually going to start killing itself. And further in the future we can make it, the better for us.
0: So do you think there's been a sea change in how people are now seeing environmental protests? Because I think like 10 years ago, if Extinction Rebellion had happened, everyone would have been, oh God, a load more hippie trippies, like kind of, you know, holding up the transport system. But now it feels like there's been a change and actually people want to listen and want to governments to listen and want to see h- huge change is that is that it's kind of real real
3: I think to an extent yes but I, I also think that Extinction Rebellion have kind of got an image problem it sounds bad but they're not relatable to a lot of people because they kind of still look a bit hippie-ish and they're still doing the same sort of thing so I think I think David Attenborough does a lot with his programs on Blue Amazing. Planet. But, you know, and he's just done one on Netflix, which is a special, pretty much a one-off, of uh, I think, 12 episodes or something, which is brilliant. And it shows the actual effect that we're having on the planet, which I think he does more good than any of some of the – that's a bit extreme. Gluing yourself to a train. I mean, Yeah,
1: but <laughs> you, need, you need to make people well, – what else can people do to actually say eco UK-friendly glue? <laughs> yeah, well the point. train
0: bit was a bit weird because i thought well that's what aren't we kind of really trying to encourage people onto trains yeah so, like, so that didn't you know talking about images i didn't didn't think that was the greatest image to be putting out there because it's, it's
1: border is the, the, the it dynamic the
0: DLR, of, and i'm pretty sure that's one of the the trends, dynamic
1: of protest has brought it to the attention of the media so it's really is stopping other people from having an easy ride or going... Yeah, there's a hundred reasons why that's terribly bad. But without doing those things, they are not being listened to.
0: No, exactly. And fair enough. I I mean, I'm all for it in, you know, in many ways. I think, like, some of it was like misguided as far as what they did but you're always going to get that and i think and it was very well timed people are so bored of hearing about brexit they'll listen to anything like on the news that isn't brexit so you know it's like God well, some other headline
1: talking about uh, there was a on uh, just the, in april sometime in april, about the 10th of april there was a questions time just before they broke up for their holidays on on and uh, Caroline Lucas asked the Prime Minister, you know, what she's going to do. Is she going to meet Greta Thunberg? Is she going to do the things in this, you know, young people about the future? This is before the Extinction Rebellion happened. happened. Yeah. And she was just battered out, you know. Uh, Theresa May, I think. I was driving home and I listened to it, and she she basically just ridiculed one, just just said, look, you know, I've got a school in my constituency that got five green flags, whatever a green flag is. Like some Tory invented, you know, well done for cutting the picking daisies or something. But the point is it's it's mickey mouse greenness yeah and when is the honorable lady going to realize that we are a green government and we do more than we should she if ever there's a, a, a tape re- recording of her that will come back to haunt the tory party her it will be that one yep. because they are so none of us are green
0: and i think everyone feels that actually brexit is the sort of pantomime that's happening in front of this disaster that's you know, behind the stage kind of thing, which yeah. is you the, know the, the environment, and and mm. and people are getting angry about that. What well,
1: look? What what, what can the, the individual do? Is is the question? I think it boils down to every single person, every single day. You, you I cannot spend my entire time thinking about green issues because my business would fail. And sixteen people would 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 end up not having a job. It has and to be
0: government like you yeah. know, led, doesn't it? Because none of us can And
1: it's gonna be unpalatable
0: uneconomic decisions. No
1: one's gonna get voted in coming up with a policy that needs to happen. Yeah so it's it's so we're gonna get the same old, same old two party bullshit that goes on um forever until you know, until the tide does come into where that boat was in Trafalgar Square and it is that high and everyone goes, oh. Do you
0: reckon it's gonna take that? Yeah.
1: Something really hideous is gonna happen. Um, I mean,
0: people would argue those really hideous things are happening in other places, just, aren't
1: they? Look, it's too late. It is too late. There is, a, there is an island of plastic in the Pacific that is bigger than France and Spain. Every one of, the, every one of you listening to this knows what I'm saying is right, me included. I'm not going to not drive my car, though. Uh, yeah. Well, we've had a conversation in the office about being green, um, which, which so everyone, I said, look, everyone, look at me, puritanical gear, I'm going to bike in. And so I said, I'm, there's no judge or jury on this, but I'm just going to say to you, try and think of every conceivable way that you can not use energy. And, you know, and a number of say, well, we walk up to town for our lunch. I drive up. Um, you know, all those, yeah, OK, do you know what? There's lots of points. It's, it's a consciousness issue. Oh. Anyway, everyone, we'll try and be more uh, cheerful and not quite so prick your conscience next week. Thanks for listening.
0: Bye-bye.
1: Bye. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dewin Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at or follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by Tin Shed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio.